I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Podcast Playlist, and I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Every week, we highlight great shows coming out of the podcast world. And today, we've got some gripping new releases for you. Plus, we're going to hear from their creators. We'll learn about the most expensive highway mega project ever built in the United States and One Man's Personal Experiences with Weight, a series that explores the way we avoid discussing our bodies. But first, we're going to hear some late-breaking news from the true crime podcast called Unascertained. Just a warning, this next interview contains descriptions of violence. In 2016, Soleiman Fakiri was killed by guards at the Central East Correctional Center in Lindsay, Ontario. He was beaten, shackled, pepper sprayed, covered with a spit hood, and left face down on the floor of his cell, where he was soon found dead. I'm able to say he was killed by guards because that was the finding of a coroner's inquest held last month, seven years after Solomon's death. But the same conclusion was reached more than two years earlier by the TVO podcast, Unascertained. Yusuf Zine is the host of Unascertained, and he's with me now in our Toronto studio. Yusuf, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you give us an overview of what happened between Solomon's arrest and his death? Yeah. Um, so Suleiman Fakiri was a 30-year-old man, um, refugee from Afghanistan. Um, he came here with his family um, at a very young age. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and in 2016, during one of his episodes with an altercation with his neighbor, he was arrested uh, by Durham police. And instead of being transferred to a hospital, he was sent to the Central East Correctional Center in Lindsay, Ontario, also known as the Lindsay Jail. He spent 11 days in that jail. Um, majority of them were in solitary confinement. And on the 11th day, after an altercation with correctional officers, he was found dead in his cell with multiple, actually over 50 bruises and lacerations all over his body. After that incident, there were multiple police investigations, but there were no criminal charges that were laid. Nobody was held responsible. And a coroner's report found his death unascertained, which basically means they couldn't determine which factor caused his death. Right. And and how similar were the results of the inquest to what you uncovered while making the podcast? I would say we were pretty um, spot on when it comes to, you know, the the cause of death and the manner of death. What really shocked us was the new information that just further 
um, made our conclusion even stronger, you know. Um, for example, a lot of correctional officers described Suleiman as, you know, violent and, you know, in, while in custody, he would try to, you know, attack guards and, and was very difficult to deal with. But there was one testimony that stood out to me, which was by Sergeant Clark Moss, who was uh, a correctional officer there. Um, he, When he learned about Sully's condition, he was shocked. He was angry. He couldn't believe that Suleiman was being left alone in his cell in his condition. He had not been sent to a hospital. His The state of his cell was very disturbing. Um, and so he managed to calm Suleiman down by himself, spoke very calmly Solomon wasn't violent. He managed to get him into a shower. Even the officer got into the shower himself and cleaned him and helped him, you know, uh, feel better. We we knew that in our investigation, but to hear it from people directly and to see how much policy failure there was, you know, I mean, I think at one point an officer said there were over 60 policy failures and all of those led to Solomon's death. So, you know, we, we sort of knew what circumstances led to his death. It was just sort of different hearing it firsthand mm-hmm. from, from the people who were actually there that day. And there was there was video and audio revealed, yeah. right, as well. What was it like hearing that and seeing that? That was, uh, that was difficult because, you know, we had, we knew that this video existed during our investigation, but because it was tied up in investigations, we weren't able to see it. Mm-hmm. We were only able to talk about it. And so for the first time ever, we were seeing... Um, the, the hallway uh, CCTV surveillance tape. So that was really revealing to watch. Um, but really the the testimony I mentioned, Clark Moss um, helping Suleiman to shower and sell, he had someone record all of that. So for the first time, we're seeing Suleiman in custody. I, I had never seen him in jail. Mm. I never even heard his voice, to be honest with mm. you. And so to hear him really in a very distressing um state was very heartbreaking and 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 we decided to put that uh, at least in audio form in in the final episode solomon can you stand up for me please uh, oh, no, no, no. here thank you come let me take those cuffs off so you can get a nice shower and we'll get you some soap here come here come here answer thank you you're doing good see no one's gonna hurt you yeah it was heartbreaking to hear how gentleness was really effective at calming him down. Yeah. You were with Solomon's brother, he's also named Yusuf, when the verdict was announced. What was that moment like? Very emotional. It was, uh, you know, it was a very heavy day, um, mainly because we didn't know which way it was going to go. I mean, I think the Fakiri family was so used to being disappointed by um, the government, by the system. I think we were all sort of half expecting a verdict of undetermined or accident, which is obviously not what they had wanted and and not really close to the truth. And so when they read out homicide, I, I distinctly remember Yusuf Fakiri jumping out of his chair, falling to the ground and just Finally, bursting into tears, you know. The government of Toronto, specifically the Ministry of the Solicitor General, the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of the Attorney General. I would have called my You know, he sacrificed so much of his life to get to this point. And and now that he had finally got there, it was just an overwhelming amount of emotion that he let out. And then it was interesting to watch how, you know, journalists from various broadcasters would appear at his door and, and they also wanted to 
get his reactions and how he had to go into PR mode. So it was a brief uh, burst of emotion, and then he went into his his amazing mode of, of um, talking to the press. When the podcast came out in 2021, there had been three separate police investigations into the case before that, and they were all inconclusive. So... How much of a role do you think that the podcast played in in bringing us to this point? Well, in terms of the coroner's inquest, I mean, people have said, oh, you know, your podcast helped start a coroner's inquest. I just want to say that, like, you know, a coroner's inquest is mandatory when there is uh, a death in custody. So that would have happened regardless. Um, why it happened so late, so many years after Suleiman's death, seven years, yeah. um, you know, that I, I, I can't speak to. But I, I think what really our, our podcast was able to do was ask a lot of the questions that weren't really being asked. And, you know, we were able to interview certain people that hadn't really spoken out about this case. Uh, people like, uh, at the time, uh, the chief forensic pathologist of Ontario, Michael Polanin. And, and this is really where I think our podcast came into play, is we had been trying to interview them for a long time, and we hadn't heard anything. Um, and then just as we were about to finish up our last episode, episode six, rather, um, they got back to us, and they told us when we sat down with them that they had been getting emails about our podcast and people saying, hey, you, have you, are you hearing this unascertained thing? You should really maybe make a statement. Um, and so they finally did. And I think the podcast helped play a part in that. But, uh, but you know, we can't take the credit. Yusuf Fakiri and his family have been advocating, you know, relentlessly for seven years, which is not easy to do for a grieving family. They also have amazing, uh, an, an amazing legal team, Nader Hassan and Ted Morocco, who have also been working on this case for seven years. Um, all of the success of this case is a result of their hard work. I think we were just there to kind of ask the, the right questions at the right time. And now that there has been a result in this case, what does it mean for Suleiman's family? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. People, when they hear homicide, they assume that criminal charges are going to follow. You mm -hmm. know, that's just natural. Um, unfortunately, this is a coroner's inquest and, and criminal charges or accountability is not a part of that process. Uh, it only speaks to his manner of death. So Will there be a, a another police investigation? Will anyone get charged? It's hard to say. Um, but uh, for the family, I think they finally have the answer they've been looking for. You know, I think for seven years, they've felt like they've been shouting on the sidelines. And so finally, you have a government institution, the coroner's office of Ontario, acknowledging and, and jury members acknowledging that you're right, that mm. the family was right. And I think that's really all they... They want it, and it sets a huge precedent. But I think it gives them a semblance of peace so that they can move on with their lives. Yeah, it was a heartbreaking story, but thank you so much for doing this work because I learned a lot listening to it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and, and for, for highlighting our series. I appreciate you coming in. Yusuf Zine is the host of the TVO podcast, Unascertained. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. 
For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Weight can be a sensitive subject for many, and it's something that Ronald Young Jr. thinks about a lot. From the clothes we wear to healthcare to how we're treated every day, weight has a way of impacting every part of our daily lives. On Ronald's new podcast, we hear from overweight people and how their size affects them. Wait For It is a show that unpacks the nuanced thoughts of bigger folks and really of anyone who worries about their weight. And on the show, he explores his own personal experiences and starts up conversations about body image that most of us tend to avoid. Ronald joins me today from Virginia to tell us more about his show. Thanks for being here, Ronald. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. First of all, I just have to say I really enjoyed this show. I haven't listened to all the episodes, but the ones that I've listened to so far have been excellent. What inspired you to make this podcast? I was working on a different show called Solvable, and I was doing that with Pushkin Industries. And we did a little series on the body. We talked to Michael Moss, who wrote this book about food addiction. And we talked to Gabby Fresh about fashion. And we talked to Brianne Campos about health at every size. And the whole idea was that we were trying to get like a complete view of solving for the body, if you will. After doing it, we noticed that we had a good response in our download numbers. And we realized that there seemed to be an appetite for this type of conversation. And it was something that I wanted to talk about more, just our bodies in general. And so I sought out to make a show that was more narrative about weight and wasn't just so kind of fact-findy. Like, you know, there's a lot of debunking shows out there. Uh, Maintenance Phase talks a lot about the ways in which we can debunk diet culture and the myths that surround it. Whereas I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to people talk about their actual experience dealing with weight for both fat folks and people who think about their weight all the time. Body image still seems to be a taboo topic, especially for men. How did it feel for you to explore your personal experiences going into this project? You know, it's not even that I think it's it's taboo. I just think that we, I know men that talk about weight. We talk about weight kind of differently, and it's mostly probably because there's not necessarily as much emphasis on the image of men as there is on women. But there was a lot of things that I was hearing women say about weight that resonated deeply with me. And I knew that there was stuff that I wanted to unpack specifically about the idea of desirability when it comes to being a man. And it just felt like there was no space to actually do that. And even when we are talking about weight amongst ourselves as men, we're typically talk about either gaining or losing it in a very specific way where it's like, we got to get in shape. We got to get rid of the dad bod, but we're not really talking about how being a fat person is kind of impacting our self image beyond performance. You know what I mean? It seems like Mm -hmm. it's always kind of framed in this very almost athletic sports centric way, as opposed to like this kind of value, like self-esteem and my own self-consciousness, like how I feel about all of that, like existentially about it, which is 
where I think most humans are struggling. Mm-hmm. And and even just the word fat, which you use all through the podcast, it carries such a stigma. What were your thoughts on using that word to describe yourself or others? And was that a conversation that unfolded while you were making the show on how people wanted to be referred to? I never wanted to be, I I still don't want to be called fat by anybody who's not fat or generally by anyone. If I'm being honest, I I still bristle at the idea of being called fat, mostly because I don't think we as a society have done the work to actually remove the harm Mm. behind calling each other fat. You know, we're still in a place where the former president, the minute he does something that irritates everyone, everyone's talking about how fat he is. Like this fat guy is doing blah, blah, blah. And, and people know that that's like the insult that will really get to the heart of how he's feeling, even though he's probably doing half a dozen or hundreds of things that are way more detrimental that have nothing to do with his weight. And that's just one example of the ways in which we're talking about this word fat, but we haven't objectified it enough so that it's just simply a descriptor. I talk about this in episode six with Deshaun Harrison, who is an activist who mentions that they think about the word fat the same way they think about the word black. Whereas like, you know, black is just meant to be a descriptive of people as opposed to meant to be detrimental, even though at one point it was used in a detrimental sense. But it seems like over years in time, we've gotten to a place where it's evolved beyond its original use. So I don't think we've quite gotten there with fat yet. We hear so much about the struggle that bigger people feel just to exist in the world. It's a sentiment that's brought up throughout the show. Because of how our world is structured, can you elaborate on some of those struggles? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm working on an episode now for season two, which is just uh, airplane seats. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I'm going, I'm taking a flight in a couple of, in a month or so, a couple of weeks. And I'm not so big that I don't fit into an airplane seat, but sometimes the seat belts don't fit. I also have broad shoulders. So those seats aren't very comfortable for somebody who's like has my dimensions generally. Anybody who's even bigger than me is having an even worse experience when it comes to not just airplane seats, but chairs in general. There's a, 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 I believe a bishop named William Barber who went to go see the color purple recently and brought his own chair into the theater to watch it. Mm-hmm. And because he wanted to feel comfortable and was not allowed to use his own chair because there was a fire code violation uh, from the movie theater and just things like that just feels like there, there should be some sort of compassionate way of, of looking at fat folks saying like, I want to preserve my dignity. I want to enjoy the same thing that you enjoy. But there's a lot of ways in which the world is just not set up for anybody above a certain size, even though the majority of Americans are over the size that we would consider to be average in the first place. In what ways would you like to see societal norms and narrative change so bigger people don't constantly have to fight? Is it through, you know, legislation? Is it just through full-scale acceptance of bigger bodies in spaces? What would you like to see? I mean, I think it's a little bit of all of it. You know, like we have to really examine why we do the things we do. And I think if I stick with the airplane example, we have to say, why is it important for all of these seats to be much smaller? And if the reason just becomes so the airline can have a bigger bottom line and carry more people and do more flights, then we have to say, well, what do we lose by following that sort of model? Like, how was this experience then cheapened for everyone? Like when we think about design, like something that's commonly noted, especially amongst 
disability advocates is that when we design with disability in mind, it allows everyone to be more accommodated by that. You know, there's, I think one person told me once that all of the cabs in England are accessible cabs, meaning that everyone that gets into a cab, it's an accessible cab, <laughs> like, which that's, that's incredible to me. And I, I've never gotten into a cab once and been like, this cab will not do. It is accessible. How is that going to work for me? Because I know that once I get in that cab, it's going to fit me and it's going to fit someone who is not like me, who might have a wheelchair or some other disability that might prevent them from getting into a normal cab. That's the way we really have to start thinking about society as a whole, saying like, what can we be doing to encompass everybody and to make them feel welcomed and included? And it seems like a lot of what drives us. And you know what? I'm, and I'm realizing I'm talking about America. This is a Canadian show, but like, like I feel like it generally capitalism around the world tends to be the scourge of the planet. And if we stopped thinking about the bottom line and started thinking more about inclusion, I think a lot of the problems around, you know, bringing fat folks from the margins into greater society would, would solve themselves. Yeah. It is a worldwide problem in terms of accessibility in general. So, um, yeah. And I'm sorry, I only say that because I just didn't want to, yes, I have the tendency I, I to always that. be American centric and I, I, I got to cut that out. <laughs> no, no, no. I totally, totally understand. But, um, so in a moment, we're going to play a clip from episode two where you share how you didn't pursue a relationship with a woman named Caitlin because she was bigger. What was it like to reckon with that experience? You know, the whole reason why I did that episode was because I felt like I had to reconcile with the ways in which I treated fat folks when I was straight sized. And I think much like everyone else, even the people that, you know, again, that make fun of our former president based on his weight and not based on his policy in existence, which is a much easier way to denigrate him. I feel like I, I weaponized it. I used it as a tool to be mean, to hurt people. As a fat person now, I feel like I, I understand what that actually feels like when you already have the question hovering about how people feel about you when you just show up in the room. Like, I'm just going to get groceries. I'm just going to fill up my car with gas. I'm just going into Target. I'm already reconciling with, I wonder what these people think of me. And when the treatment of certain people begins to reflect the negative self-talk that you already have, there's something just uniquely hurtful and harmful about that. And I felt like this episode, I needed to reconcile with that because two things can be true at the same time, which was that I did this to other people and that I am now in a place where it, it can be done to me and I understand it and I'm empathetic about it in a way that maybe I should have been more of when I was straight sized. It makes me feel sad. I still reconcile with that every day. It's probably one of the worst things I've ever done. And I, I still feel ashamed about it. Hmm. Well, let's take a, a listen to the clip now. Here's a little bit from Wait For It. I should have just liked who I liked and said it with my chest. But there is something uniquely hurtful about people laughing, joking, or straight up saying to your face, the person you like is unattractive and you're weird for liking them. And the truth is that now, in a lot of ways, I understand that as a young person, I was very self-centered. Everything was about how I felt or what I wanted. So it was hard to recognize that in trying to make myself feel better, I was actively hurting Caitlyn. I understand that now emotionally, and I sympathize with Caitlin. But now I'm fat, and I understand it physically, 
And I empathize with Caitlin in a way that I don't feel like I deserve to. Caitlin and I have known each other for just over 20 years now. And like most folks who've known each other for an extended time, we had moments where we were talking and when we weren't talking to each other as much. I'm not the same person that I was in 2002. And every year that passed since our earliest interactions, I felt more and more guilty about the way that I treated Caitlin. We've kept in touch throughout the years, and as we started comparing notes on our experiences, I realized that Caitlin also had going on in her mind that was impacting both how she viewed herself and the relationship choices she made. Caitlin's view of herself and the world was shaped at a very early age. Probably like second, first, second grade. I felt bigger than the girls, even though I wasn't huge at that time. Like I had roles that I that the other girls didn't have. And my father was very critical of my weight pretty much my entire life until this day. He'll still say stuff. As Caitlin got older, she got more strategic about the ways in which she dressed and interacted with the world. I was very conservative with how I dressed. I didn't like wearing bathing suits, although I loved the water and swimming. And I wore these long jean skirts that covered my, I had no shape, but I thought that that hid me. She went to a private high school and there were a lot of well-to-do folks and people who just cared about the way they looked. Comparison quickly turned to judgment and not only judgment of skinny folks, but of other fat folks. So... When I cover myself and I see somebody that's dressed with their legs showing or stomach or I'm like, why are they wearing that? Especially somebody of size. It makes me it makes me judge them. It makes me look at them like, why aren't you covering that? I'm like, oh, girl, shouldn't have been wearing that. Some folks call this projection. Others internalize fat phobia. But either way, Caitlin hated that she was fat and as a result, hated seeing other fat folks that weren't doing as good a job concealing their bodies as she was. It makes me uncomfortable because maybe maybe it makes me jealous, honestly. I wish I had that confidence. Like I wish I wish I felt good enough about myself to show myself off. That was who Caitlin was when she met me. A Ronald that was measuring her against his unreasonably specific standards. A Ronald who was so occupied about his own experience that he had no room to be concerned with how Caitlin felt. I felt like a secret. I felt you were ashamed of the way I looked. And that was why. Because I was cute. I knew I was cute. I knew I was pretty in the face. I knew I had a good sense of humor. I knew I had a good personality. It was all, I figured it was all physical. That's the whole, you know, so I felt ashamed of how I looked. And I always had. I mean, that wasn't something that was new. That wasn't the first time Caitlin has said that to me. The first time she said it, we were on the phone catching up mid-2021. I remember she said, you were ashamed of me. She said it directly like that. I was quiet for a while because I didn't know what to say. I didn't know if an apology would be enough. Caitlin and I talked sporadically over the years, but we never talked about why it didn't work out for us in 2002. As young people, we just understood that things fizzle out. But as full-grown adults, with the experiences we were acknowledging and giving space for some real feelings, there was a lot of guilt for me and a lot of shame for Caitlin. To confront it in that moment sitting on my couch as a fat man, I felt I understood 
in a way I had never before. I've apologized to Caitlin a lot, and we've reconciled as friends, but when I started making this show, I realized that I couldn't talk about being fat without facing the ways in which I interacted with fat people in the past. But you weren't the first man that made me feel like a secret, so... Do you remember the earliest time that you felt like that? Uh, I was 15. I was working at Splashdown Water Park in Manassas, and I was hooking up with my boss. So obviously that was not okay. But, you know, like he was a college kid and he wanted me and I was a sophomore in high school. And, you know, he was a soccer star and I was this fat girl. So that was the first. That was the first time. You were the second. When Caitlin said I wasn't the first guy to make her feel like a secret, it felt like a reprieve at first because it's like she was already familiar with the reasons why she was being mistreated. Like, Ronald, don't worry about this. I know what was happening, and you didn't originate this behavior. That's not who I want to be, but it's also not who I want to have been. And listening to Caitlin now, I'm noting the way that she talks about herself, like earlier when she mentioned she was pretty in the face, or just now when she called herself this fat girl. It's not different from the way that she talks about other fat people either. She doesn't have much sympathy for them. She has even less for herself. I mean, nobody wanted a relationship with me. People knew I had, I was weak and would take what I could get. Um, There's one guy that I met and um, we had a relationship going for a little while. Like it wasn't anything serious. It wasn't anything exclusive. It was what he would give me, but bits and pieces at a time. I mean, he didn't take me out with his friends. Obviously I went back internal and it was like, well, it has to be the way I look. Because I know I'm funny and know I'm cute. And so I settled. I settled for what I could get, for just the little scraps. And I looked for the attention and affection of men to validate how I felt, to validate that I was good and I was pretty and I was okay. And it was always the wrong man. Caitlin felt like because she was fat, she was getting what she deserved. I really hate that I was a part of that. We just heard a clip from Wait For It. It's a production of Oh, It's Big Ron Studios, and it's distributed by Radiotopia from PRX. This episode was produced and written by Ronald Young Jr., with editing from Sarah Dealey, sound design, and mixing from the Reverend John Delore of Starlight Diner. If you'd like to hear more from this series, we'll have more details on our website, cbc.ca slash podcast playlist, and we'll include info about all the shows you hear today. Ronald joins me today from Virginia to tell us more about his show. What was it like to speak with Caitlin as an adult? I just, I really feel like it's it's hard to reconcile with things that you did, especially as a younger person or as a, you know, a less evolved person. Like the, the assumption is that, you know, you go, you're in elementary school, middle school, high school, you learn everything you need to know. You become an upstanding person in your 18 through 25s. And then like, that's it. That's the person you're going to be the rest of your life. But, you know, I'm 39 now and there's still stuff that I figured I wasn't going to be learning at from 36 until now that I'm, I'm like just now learning, you know what I mean? Or learning how to be better and now how, how not to be a jerk. Like, I feel like if we're living life right, we should be spending the rest of our lives learning how not to be a jerk. And I, and I, and I guess that's me saying like, when I think about 
the conversation with Caitlin, I just, I, it makes me realize how much more I had to learn mm-hmm. at a time period when I thought I knew everything I needed to know. And I knew, I knew what I would want the rest of my life. And the truth is that I didn't. And in a lot of cases, we, we, we don't, you know? But that's so interesting. Cause I think, you know, with this subject, it's still such an acceptable form of bias in society. Mm -hmm. And I feel like society is still kind of learning um, and reckoning with this. So what advice do you have for people who want to unlearn weight bias or fat phobia, but they don't even know where to start or even maybe realize that they are fat phobic? I think the first thing is just to assume that you are and, and start working backwards from there. My assumption is that every single person on the planet is probably if not fat phobic now has been fat phobic at, at some point in their life. I have a friend of mine. He's one of the air quote wokest dudes that I know. And I remember one time we were talking about something about trans rights or something. And I had mentioned something about fat folks. And this was before I made weight for it. It was years before I made weight for it. And he, he said, listen, that's the one thing I don't get behind. Like if you're fat, you need to get your butt to the gym. Like just figure it out. Like I don't just, I'm not, I don't, I don't buy into all that. And I remember listening to this person who again is one of the wokest people I've ever known and listening to him say that and just say like, Wow. Like even, even the people that we think are the most progressive can still have very regressive views, just like dependent on, on their own experience, on their own thoughts, whatever. And the assumption is that like, we're all going to be there naturally. So if I had to offer any advice to anyone, I would say it, uh, don't assume that you are so progressive that you don't still hold some belief that might be oppressive to someone else. And that's something that I have to work through, not just with that bias, but with other biases that I thought I don't have until I like have to really sit down and examine myself and say, man, I know maybe I still do have some problems with this particular issue. And it takes like exposing myself to that. It takes like reading more asking questions, you know, and asking questions sometimes in environments that like, I'm afraid to ask questions, you know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. it just means like pressing forward through the things that are making me uncomfortable and seeing what I discover on the other side. I just want to thank you so much for, for this show and for, for taking the time today to talk to us. I I really appreciate that y'all thought of me and I appreciate y'all bringing me in and uh, I love Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. That was Ronald Young Jr., host of the new podcast, Wait For It. You can listen to all of season one on your favorite podcast app. What comes to mind when you hear the word construction? Perhaps it's the thought of sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic during your commute and having to weave your way down roads lined with pylons while watching out for people in safety gear. Maybe you think of cranes and scaffolding blocking the view from your window or sounds of drilling and hammering during what would normally be your quiet time. Large construction projects have a way of igniting cynicism in almost everybody. At least that's what podcaster Ian Koss noticed growing up through The Big Dig in Boston. It was a mega project that took the I-93, an elevated highway system, and replaced it with a massive tunnel system. And it's gone down in history as the most expensive highway project in America. Ian joins me today from Boston to tell us what he learned working on this latest show, The Big Dig. Ian, welcome to Podcast Playlist. 
So glad to be here. I just have to ask, this is a story about construction. Mm -hmm. How did you manage to take a story that on the surface sounds like it might be kind of boring and make it so interesting? Yeah, well, I'm glad it was interesting. I was not convinced of that when we started out on this project. But what I came to believe as I looked into this story and is now something I, I kind of hold deeply is that bureaucracy is really, really fascinating. Bureaucracy, I feel like it gets a bad rap. You know, people think that's boring. Nobody wants to be a bureaucrat. But really, when you get down into the weeds of it, once you get past the hard hats and the jargon and stuff, it's just great human drama. Hmm. And as I mentioned off the top, the big dig was this project to replace a major elevated highway. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what problem it was trying to solve? Yeah. So Boston, like most big American cities, built highways right through the center of it in the 50s and 60s, back when all the planners, all the highway transportation people thought that was the great thing to do. Fast forward a couple decades, that highway that they built through the middle of Boston was not looking so great. It was crumbling. It was clogged up with traffic. It divided the city. It was ugly. And so there was building pressure to do something about this elevated highway. At the same time, the main airport for the city was also really hard to access. And so what ended up coming together in the 1970s and 80s was this vision of a kind of mega, mega project that would replace all these highways and build all these new tunnels, reconnecting parts of the city. So it really turned into kind of like a total facelift of downtown Boston, which is why the project was so huge and so expensive. And so what was the projected cost of this kind of highway facelift? And what was their estimate of how long it would take versus what actually happened? So the earliest, earliest estimates, are they're almost laughable now, but they were in the range of two-ish billion dollars. This is in 1983 dollars, so mm -hmm. very early in the project story. By the time it's all said and done, it costs almost $15 billion. Wow. That's like a 20-year journey that gets you between those two numbers. Timing-wise, the initial projections were that it would take about a decade or less to do, and it ended up taking 16 years. So it, it really became a sort of like generational project. Like it was, it started when I was barely walking. I think mm. I was probably a, like a toddler and I was done with high school by the time it was finished. It was just, it took that long. Because you grew up, you know, with this in the atmosphere for so long and because you're based in Boston, I, I would imagine, you know, you knew so much about this, but how did you end up getting involved in actually covering this and exploring this as a story? Yeah, I mean, I would say I did and didn't know a lot about it. I knew what any kid might know about a big infrastructure project going on in their state. And most of what I knew was that it was terrible. That's really mm. what I heard about this project growing up, that it was expensive, that it was corrupt, that it was behind schedule, over budget, etc. Boondoggle, fiasco, all that. That was the narrative I had. As I spent more time living in Boston, as an adult, I mean, 
experiencing the fruits of the project, how it had, in fact, transformed the city, I sort of started to get interested in that disconnect between all the terrible things I had heard about this project growing up and the very clear and visible results of that project in the city today and really understand the story in a deeper way. And we hear from so many people in this story, you know, all the players, the government officials, the decision makers, the citizens who are worried about the project. How did you balance all those voices? And do you ever worry about trying to please everyone when (laughs) creating a project of this scale? It was pretty clear from the beginning that we would not please everyone. (laughs) There is no you know that in boston at least i'll say this this subject remains somewhat you know people have strong feelings about it uh, even all these years later uh, and you'll talk to some people who feel like it was the best thing that ever happened to the city and some people who feel like it was an unmitigated disaster my goal though as we chose which voices to include and which narratives to highlight was that no matter what kind of impression or background you come to the story with, that A, you will learn something new. And second, that whatever it is, whatever narrative that you know you may have about this project, that it will complicate it in some way. Mm. That the narrative that this was just a boondoggle fiasco, that that narrative is too simple. And the narrative that it was an engineering marvel and a boon for the city, that's also a little simplistic. And so my hope was, you know, even if we couldn't please everyone, we could at least complicate everyone's narratives just a little bit. Did you gain any insights on how to make ambitious infrastructure easier? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the Big Dig is sort of equal parts inspirational story and cautionary tale in my mind. And I'm not sure, you know, for for Canadian listeners, if if the big dig even registers, you know, but I think certainly in the United States, it really is kind of shorthand for big government project that went awry like Mm -hmm. that. If you know one thing about the big dig, that is what a lot of people know. And I think despite that, there is something inspirational in this story that it this project did actually get done. And I think, you know, we measure the Big Dig against all the other projects that get built, you know, and like we say, oh, wow, this one took so long and was so expensive. But we don't measure it often against the projects that never got built at all, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the big ambitious ideas, you know, for transit or energy or housing or, you know, whatever it is that just never make it off the drawing board because the political will isn't there or the funding isn't there or the consensus isn't there. And so I think it's important when you look at a story like The Big Dig to remember this radical visionary project did get built. And I think there's a lot of kind of positive lessons to be learned in how that consensus was built and how the project unfolded. But I think the cautionary tale side of it is that somewhere along that journey, the public narrative, the story of this project turned so sour and cynical that it was almost impossible for the project to function at a certain Mm. point. There was so much scrutiny surrounding it. And so one of the lessons I take is that if we're going to undertake ambitious projects like this, we really have to attend 
to the narrative, to the way it's communicated to the public, so that we can see the long-term benefits and not just see the cost and the inconvenience and disruption. Because the Big Dig was very nearly a casualty of its own kind of like spiral of negativity. Hmm. Well, you know, it really struck me while this the story obviously takes place in Boston, I saw a lot of parallels to various decades-long projects that are happening here in Toronto. I know people who live in Montreal can stay the same. Like, that city's mm-hmm. always under construction. Yep. What do you want listeners to take away in regards to how they think about their own cities? I will say it's it's really heartening to me that listeners from around the country and around the world can listen to this story and find echoes of their own local projects. Hmm. You know, there are many things about this story that are particular and specific, but there's also a lot about it that I think is very generalizable. I heard from someone in Berlin recently who told me about the Berlin airport. I've heard from listeners in, you know, on the West Coast and Toronto and Ottawa, people all over who are kind of using this story as a lens for understanding their, you know, the project in their backyard. What I see as one of the real values of this story is that this is not that long ago. This was in the 90s, 2000s. And so it offers kind of a relevant case study. This project is complete. And so we can now see the kind of full life cycle, the full story arc from conception to execution to the legacy and benefits. It's hard to kind of take in the full scale of a project like this because it's just like on a, on a bigger time scale than, than most humans are accustomed to working on or thinking in, right? Really decades long, generational time scales. So my hope is that the story of the Big Dig can kind of help give that perspective. Yeah, it did give me hope that maybe one day Toronto will be whole again <laughs> at some point in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, in a moment, uh, I, I want to play a clip from episode one to give people a sense of the show. But this story that you're highlighting in this episode takes place about a decade before The Big Dig with the proposal for the inner belt. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the origin story of The Big Dig is really in the anti-highway movement. Um, So I said at the beginning, you know, that this project really began with the construction of interstates through the middle of cities. Um, and so the the kind of coalition that backed this project, the political will to make it happen, that force really coalesced, I would say, in the late 60s, early 70s, when you have in Boston a pretty radical and historic movement to stop the construction of interstates through the heart of the city. Sort of the great irony of this project is that the people who like really championed the big dig were actually people who hated highways and wanted to tear them down and stop them. Um, And so chief among them is a man named Fred Salvucci. He is really the architect of the big dig in many important ways, but he got his start as uh, an anti-highway activist in the 1960s. And this is his story. Okay, let's take a listen. So let's get the lay of the land. There will be several highways you need to keep track of in this part of the story, but they all have a common origin, a master plan for the region drawn out way back in 1948. 
So if you could imagine something that highway planners often call spoken wheel system. So you're looking at radio roads coming out of a center circle. For the 1960s, a few pieces of that hub and spoke system had been built. But there were still, crucially, a handful of roads needed to complete the whole scheme, including something called the inner belt. So when we think about the inner belt road, it's the heart of that wheel. This is the road that Salvucci's professor was lecturing about, that Salvucci thought was absolutely insane. And he wasn't the only one. We said, no, 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 no. It's not going to happen. Anstey Benfield lived one block from the proposed route of the highway. Right square in the middle of the line of the inner belt. The road was supposed to start in Boston, then loop around into the neighboring city of Cambridge. That is where Anstey lived, and where the whole region's highway fight would begin. This part of Cambridge was largely working class. People used to call it the Greasy Village because historically it had been the site of a massive factory that made soap from rendered pork fat. Then just down the road, you had the candy factories. Necco wafers, Charleston Chews, Junior Mints, all made in Cambridge and all giving off smells of their own. So in the 1960s, you had a lot of longtime residents who had come to work the industrial jobs. Immigrants from Ireland, Poland, Barbados, Panama, and Black Americans coming up from the South. But this being Cambridge, Massachusetts, you also had the grad students and professors. One side was MIT, the other side was a hall of Harvard. I mean, a lot of Harvard. That meant engineers, sociologists, highly educated troublemakers of all stripes. Mayor Hayes, what is your objection to the abundance of hippies in Cambridge? The basic objection I have is the, the amount of them. Noam Chomsky was lecturing at MIT. Joan Baez was singing protest anthems in Harvard Square. Women's liberation, the Vietnam War. It was pretty fertile ground for an activist movement. And a highway was the kind of issue that could bring everyone together, from Catholic priests and housewives to radical lefties and college students. I had my graduate degree in urban studies, and I had a lot of energy, and I needed something to do. Well, lo and behold, within a year of buying that house on Chestnut Street, they started planning to knock the thing down. At that point, I went into action. In early 1966, Anstey collected over a thousand signatures from other residents along the Inner Belt route. I took the pile of signatures and nailed them to the wooden doors of City Hall. There's a picture of this in the local paper, the Cambridge Chronicle, with Anstey carrying her two-year-old daughter on her back. Within two weeks, they changed the wooden doors to glass. But the point was made. The residents of Cambridge would not go quietly. Around this same time, Fred Salvucci set aside his bricklaying dreams for good. He took a job as a transportation planner with the city of Boston. His boss, the mayor, actually supported the inner belt. But Salvucci found that many of his fellow city planners did not. So they started to meet 
there was no game plan from the beginning. Uh, we just sort of stumbled into it. One of those rogue city planners started writing pieces about the highway for the Cambridge Chronicle. Well, why has Cambridge got its head in the sand? Why aren't we proposing alternatives? There are questions about whether the road ought to be built at all, but certainly if you're going to build it, it doesn't have to be this bad. And one day, a local priest reached out to the group. And said, gee, you're saying things that we're thinking in the neighborhood, but you've got technical skills that we don't have. Would you be willing to work with us? That call would change the course of the movement. All of a sudden, we're like unpaid consultants working for the neighborhood. And I want to stress just how radical this was. For years, states around the country had been telling residents, trust us, we know what's best. We have the experts. Now, here were those same experts saying, no, the state is wrong. Eventually, Salvucci's group got a name, Urban Planning Aid. Did it feel like you were almost crossing enemy lines or something? I mean, you're working for the city and then you're moonlighting, helping residents and communities organize to oppose the city and state. Were those things intention for you? I'm not by nature a sneaky person. So I sent the memo to my boss and said, look, at night, this is what I'm doing. I'm working with people who don't believe in these highways. If you have a problem, let me know and I'll find another job. He said, well, no, we don't want you to go, but we, we want you to stop doing what you're doing. And I said, well, you don't have an option. It's, it's my life. I do what I believe in. He said, ah, oh, you're crazy, but fine, do what you're doing. <laughs> At that time, Savucci was not convinced the inner belt could be stopped. You're the governor, big construction companies, labor unions, not to mention a decade of unstoppable growth in the interstate system, all pushing to make the road happen. So Savucci was more focused on finding a way to make it less destructive, so fewer families would have to lose their homes, like his grandmother had. That might sound like a modest aim, but it turned into a battle. From GBH News, that was The Big Dig. It's hosted by Ian Koss, who also produced the show with Isabel Hibbert. The show is edited by Lacey Roberts. The editorial supervisor is Stephanie Leiden, with support from Lisa Wardle. Their production manager is May Lay, and executive producer is Devin Maverick-Robbins. Host Ian Koss, join me today. Ian, thank you so much for joining us on Podcast Playlist. This is my pleasure. Thank you. You can hear the whole story on the podcast, The Big Dig, from GBH News. Find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows or at gbhnews.org slash The Big Dig. I wish I had more for you, but this brings us to the end of the episode. Maybe you have a suggestion for us. Are there any new podcasts you want us to check out? Please send them our way. You can email us at podcastplaylist at cbc.ca or find us on Facebook at CBC Podcast Playlist. Podcast Playlist is Kelsey Cueva, Julian Uzielli, and Ailee Yamamoto, with technical support from Joseph Shamoon. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Happy listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.